The Bible is not a compendium of short stories like Aesop's fables, each with a moral and some lesson on how to live. The problem when you approach Scripture that way is that it's very much about you and me, what we do. But the Bible isn't that. Remarkable as it seems, written over 1,500 years by 40 authors, three different languages, the Bible remarkably is a single story. And it's not about us as much as it's about God. And it's not primarily to show us what to do. It's about what God did and continues to do and will do. And when we get that big story, that's when we find our place in life. We find our meaning. I would argue we do find out what to do. But not because we make it about us, but because we make it about Him. We are looking at the first epoch of that great story, the Old Testament narratives. And we are in one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture, and it happens to be the very first passage in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to encourage you to turn there with me again. I'm pretty excited to dig into this today. Last week, we spent a fair amount of time getting past all the baggage that we bring as modern people into Genesis 1. We've been forced into a debate where we find ourselves defending, explaining this ancient text in a modern context. And of course, it was never meant to be that way. What we learned last week is that Moses' competitors in Genesis 1 were not scientific textbooks. They were all the creation stories of every culture around them. And we also learned that as opposed to the rest of the book of Genesis, which is historic prose narrative, and that really starts in chapter 2, which we're going to pick up next week when we look at the creation of man and our purpose, the Imago Dei. That's going to be another great week as we explore all those things. Genesis 1 is written completely different than the rest of the book. It's a highly structured, repetitive, almost poetic, symbolic text, very familiar to the original readers as a cosmogony, as a statement of the world that doesn't explain so much how, but who and why. And based on that, we looked at it, and we were liberated to really see what God originally intended to speak. Now, because so much of the current debate between certain segments of the Christian world and science have been trying to prove the literalness of Genesis— I just want to point out to you that there have always been those, including the primary reformers, the theologians that shaped who we are, our spiritual heritage, who were not caught up in that idea. They did not look at Genesis 1 from a need to see it as historic. Now, if you're saying, I have a hard time with it, I have a hard time thinking that, that the writer of, of Genesis would begin in that and then move to, prose, uh, to historic prose, isn't that a bad way to interpret? No, it's actually an accurate way to interpret because it's actually what is. But there's also precedent for it. I want to take you to a section of Scripture that we're going to come back to later on that's exactly like this. It's the first chapter of John. So why don't you turn there? Put a mark in Genesis 1 and go back to John chapter 1. And what you'll see is a remarkable similarity between the first chapter of Genesis and the first chapter of John's gospel. Now, John's gospel is history. In fact, it's biography. It's John telling the story of Jesus' life. But before he gets into the historic prose, he presents a prologue, just like Moses does. He presents an 
allegory, a symbolic statement of the story he's about to tell. Let's look at it beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man has come into the world. So, again, watch carefully the mixture of historical figures with symbolic allegory, referring to Jesus as the light. Verse 10, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, and the world did not recognize him, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known." So what do we see in this prologue? We see symbolism, allegory, metaphor. We see historical figures blended in. And all of it in order to set the stage for the theology that is at the heart of what John wants to communicate. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't want just to tell you the story of Jesus and have you make your own decisions. I'm going to tell you exactly who I believe Jesus was. And the best way I can describe that abstract truth is through metaphor. He's light. And in fact, later on, I'm going to tell you, he called himself that. I am the light of the world. Jesus used metaphor and allegory. So parables were, think about it, to communicate abstract truth. And then he also teaches theology. He says, here's the core of it. And he talks about why Jesus came. Now he gets into the story. Now, I would argue that John intentionally mirrors the first book of Genesis as he begins to tell his story of the Creator who stepped into his creation, who dwelt among us, who died for the sins of man, and then ascended again to the right hand of the Father. And the fact that John would imitate Genesis 1 as a symbolic allegory ought to tell you how the apostles themselves viewed the first chapter of Genesis. Does that make sense to you? that if John would create a similar allegory, it is a strong argument for what we're suggesting, that Genesis 1 is in fact not literal. Its goals are theological, not geological. It's about who and why, not how. Now, it leads us to a certain answer that I, I promised I would make. My tickler when I wrote to people about this series was, and I failed to do it. Joe, Joe made sure yesterday he told me that I failed to answer this question last week. <laughs> Joe said, you didn't, you didn't answer the big question. You were going to answer how you think God created the world. So take all that I've said to now 
and how we're interpreting Genesis 1, here's my answer. This is my best answer for how, how God created the world. Are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> and no one else does. Science proves tremendous things, and everything that's true in science is not a contradiction or a threat to our faith. It should never be perceived that way, because Scripture teaches us all creation reveals God's glory. So what is truth of science should never be a threat. It may, it, may, it may change some of our interpretations of God's Word, but it doesn't threaten our trust of God's Word, the authority of God's Word. It's where men make godless conclusions out of those facts that lead to certain opinions about how things happen. And the honesty is that they have no clue if that happened any more than what we're teaching. None of us really know. We just really don't know. The question you need to ask as a person of faith is, could God have created it supernaturally? And if you can't answer that question, you've got bigger problems than this study's going to solve for you. The lessons here are about the who of creation and the why. And what we did last week, we're going to review this quickly, is look at one of three aspects of this creation account. The first was what is revealed about God himself. Today we're going to look at what is revealed through this story about creation. And then next week we're going to look at uh, what it reveals about humankind, about people. But let's review what Scripture reveals about the God of creation. And we saw six things. First of all, God simply is. The Bible doesn't try to prove God exists. It assumes His existence and moves on from there. Second, that God made everything else. This is important to the original readers. Remember, they're coming out of cultures all around them that are polytheistic. They are worshiping the very things that Moses is saying. No, God said, let there be, and they were. They're created. You don't worship them. He made everything else. Third, there is only one of him. There aren't many. God said, he did. It's personalized. Fourth, he is a speaking God. The God of the Bible is not some unknowable force. He is fully engaged. He communicates himself, his purposes, and his plans. But he doesn't just communicate purposefully. He communicates just because he enjoys it. He's a relational God as well. Five, everything God made is good. We're going to revisit that in just a few minutes. And then finally, when he finished, God rested. He wasn't exhausted. He didn't need downtime like, like we need after a busy week. It was intentional. There was something purposeful and wonderful about the rest of God. Remember what the Torah was for, to help them learn how to live and how to follow and worship the one true God. The cadence of life, six days of meaningful work, one day of rest, is important to establish early because that becomes a pattern for Israel's whole life cycle, their worship, their work, how they dealt with their land. It's amazing how much this pattern of work and rest fits into every aspect of their life. Moses is giving it to them early and explaining that's part of God's pattern for creation. All right, I want to explore a little bit this idea of God being one God and yet Already in the book of Genesis, we see a very complex description of this one true God that means he is unlike us. 
God was not made in our image, as certain secular sociologists would like to suggest, that as we became more, more sophisticated, we created a singular God that more reflects us. This God of Scripture is not like us. We are like Him, but He is altogether other. And one of those things is this complexity. And we're going to look at the hints of the Trinity that are in Genesis chapter 1, three ways that we see uh, hints of the Trinity. The first is the very name for God. Every time you say, and God said, or and God did, or God blessed, or God rested, that's the word Elohim. It's the Hebrew word for the one true creator God. Here's what's fascinating about it. It's plural. It's speaking about a singular God who acts singularly. Deuteronomy says, the Lord your God, Elohim, is one God, but yet, there's a plurality within that singularity. Interesting. Secondly, we see this fascinating exchange in verse 26 of chapter 1. This is the end of the sixth day of creation. Then God said, now, now listen, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. L- listen to this. God says, let us make man in our image. So God made man in his image. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Some would say, well, maybe God's speaking to the angels. But God didn't say to the angels, let us make man in my image. Because he didn't make man in angel's image. He made man in his image. Male and female, by the way. Contrary to the horrible abuse of Scripture by some cultures, when the Genesis account refers to man, it's talking about the race, male and female. All of us equally created in the image of God. We'll talk about that more next week. God is speaking to himself Let us do this. And then God singularly acts to accomplish it. It's fascinating. Now, we have the full benefit of the whole of Scripture and the ongoing revelation of God, but do we see glimpses of what later on we come to understand, this clearly established Trinitarian idea uh, by the time of Christ? Do we see glimpses and hints of it in the Genesis account? We do. We see God, Elohim, we think of that as the Father and the Godhead. And then Scripture says the Spirit of God was upon the water and over the face of the deep. So we see the Holy Spirit there. Do we see the Son? Here's what I think. I think John helps us see it. Perpetually throughout the Genesis 1 account, how does God create? He speaks. And through his words, all things are created. What does John say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created by him. That's that's cool, isn't it? It's at least cool. Certainly cause for awe and wonder. All right, now let's look at what the creation account reveals about the universe and the world itself. All things bright and beautiful, all things great and small, the Lord God made them all. As that great hymn says, what does Genesis reveal about that creation? The first thing is covered under the statement, it's all good. 
<laughs> over and over again in the Genesis 1 account, what does God say each time he acts? He says, it's good. It's good. It's good. And then there's one moment when he says, it's not quite good yet. It's not done. And he completes his creation of the human race. And then once he's finished that, he looks back over it all and says, oh, it's really good. It's really good. Right? The Archbishop William Temple points out the contrast between the Genesis account of creation and the other world religions. Eastern religion, for instance, teaches that the world itself, the physical world, is not real. It's an illusion. And we gradually outgrow it. The illusion of the world fades away. Western religion, the Greek and Roman world, was largely dominated by what we would call dualism. And dualism taught that the world was bad, that only the spirit is noble and virtuous and good. Even Islam today, which is a monotheistic religion, teaches that paradise, the place we're going, is exclusively spiritual. We weren't really meant for this world. We're meant for the spiritual world. Only the Bible has such a high view of the goodness of the material world. It's revolutionary among religions today. Imagine it 4,000 years ago. It was revelationary. Here's how Temple puts it. Only the Bible envisions spirit and matter existing in integrity forever. Everything God makes is good. So when the church, we have had our fair share of dualism, that the flesh is essentially evil, the spirit's essentially good, as Christians, when, when we hint at that, we've got it all wrong. It's all good. Everything God makes is good. As Christians, we need to celebrate that. We'll explore the, uh, the implications of that in just a few minutes. It's all good. But secondly, it's not God. It is created, and therefore we don't worship it. In fact, everything that the cultures around them revered and worshiped is greater than them. In the creation account in Genesis... We are greater than the rest. We don't worship them. We rule them. Let's look at how the days of creation are formed and understand how the story is designed to categorically, one by one, take all of these things that people cowered under and worshipped and, and sacrificed their children to and shed blood over, hoping to appease these things. Look at how, one by one, Moses goes down and totally takes each of those and says, God made them. Stop bowing to them. The creation days are broken down into really three segments, two segments of three. The third day of each of those sections being a double act of creation and then the Sabbath, which we'll get to in a few minutes. The first three days of creation are setting the stage. You could argue that God is creating the realms of creation that through man's perspective looking at the world were apparent to him in that day. Day one, we see darkness and light. Day two, we see the air and the sea. Day three, we see the land formed, and then the vegetation is part of the land. So the first half of creation is setting the stage. You move to the next cycle of three. Now in this section, God is creating the entities that dominate those realms. On day one, he creates day and night, light and dark. What dominates that realm on day four? The sun, the luminaries, the stars. Specifically, it says to rule over the day and the night. See? 
Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. What does he create on day five? The birds of the air and the creatures of the sea. On day three, what does he create? Land and vegetation. On day six, what does he create? All the beasts of the field, all the creatures. But then finally, the double act is that he creates man. So you see this double cycle of three. First, creating the realms of creation, and then secondly, creating the rulers, the dominant figures within that creation. That's what a cosmogony does. It organizes the world. All the great philosophers had them. All the ancient and even the most pagan cultures have them. It's a way of trying to organize and look at it that makes sense of it so that they can respond to it. The key to this is all of it was created by God. It's pretty powerful. Even today, we can fall prey to worshiping creation. So it's all good, but it's not God. And then third, God's creation is our responsibility. I want to quickly take you to two verses that help us see this. We're going to go on from the creation of man. We were in verses 26 and 27 just a few minutes ago. Now we're going to read verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. There are three words here I want you to see. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over. Those are the three phrases, the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Jump with me to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Two, two statements, work it and take care of it. We're going to explore how God views our responsibility and our relationship to creation through those things. Let me just break down those words. The word fill is about reproduction, right? Populate. We were to fill the earth and basically make our presence known throughout creation as a race. The second word is subdue. That is the Hebrew word kabash, and it literally means to harness. Now, I want to balance that with the third statement, rule, which is the Hebrew word radah, which pictures a beneficent ruler functioning for the blessing and good of his people. So you see this interesting contrast. We are to be a presence throughout God's creation that's filled. But everywhere we go, we are to strike a balance between using, harnessing God's creation, using the resources that are there, but being responsible in our use of them. That's the reigning and ruling. It's a beneficent monarch over creation. Let's be clear about this. The Bible teaches that the human race is intended to be dominant over the earth, but not dominant in the way that we abuse and use up creation, but that we manage it. This isn't about worship. It's about stewardship. And stewardship is both feeling free to use all the resources God has given us in this incredible planet for life and for goodness, but doing it in a responsible way. If you're looking for a Christian perspective on environmentalism, that's it. Apply that principle to all sorts of things, forestry, land management, sea management. How do we strike a balance between proper use and feeling like God told us we could, we could harness those things, but also caring for, protecting for the benefit of it? Does that make sense? I think that's a very healthy uh, view for environmentalism. And it happens to be God's view. And so I would suggest it should be our view as Christians as well. 
How sad that, that Christians have far too often in the modern, modern conversation sided with the side that is perceived to be wanting to consume the resources of the world. And now we're getting this backlash that the new generation coming up have been handed the reins of fixing what you perceive as broken. So, so you see perhaps uh, the earth as something where I take our hands off completely. I want to suggest neither of those are what God intended. God intended to harness, to use well, but to manage generously. The world should be a better place physically because of our presence. But using it is part of the plan, and that's part of actually what makes the world better. It's an interesting thing to talk about, isn't it? All right, let's talk about the implications of this. How does God want us, therefore, to relate to creation? When we think about what we've learned about creation through the Genesis account, what is our our relationship to be? I've, I've called this point living, loving, and laughing. And uh, because I'm working in threes today, I want to suggest three (laughs) ways that we experience or interact with creation. The first is to see it, are you ready, as a glorious playground. Tim Keller says, the goodness of creation is a profound motivation for playfulness. We must not live solemn and dour lives. It ought to mark a believer of God, a follower of Jesus, that we cherish and revel in life. We ought to be the people that are full of life. Think about this. What was the first miracle that Jesus did? Did he go to a hospital? Did he uh, go to where the lepers were? Did he feed the underprivileged? Now, all those things are important, and of course, Jesus said to go do that, but what was the first miracle he did when he started his ministry? It was a party. It was a party, and it was a party that was waning, and Jesus revved it back up by making good booze. (laughs) Think about that. Christians ought to know how to play better than anybody. I I don't mean destructive play. I mean joyful, godly, vigorous play in God's good creation because we know He does all things well. And we're to revel in it. It's good. It's good always. Secondly, we need to live within that creation, understanding the sacred rhythm of it. We'll take a little more time, I think, when we get into Levitical law about this. But I just want to point out a cadence. There is an interesting cadence that occurs in the creation account. Each day, the day of the creation is just mentioned once. It begins with, and God said... And then it ends by saying, and there was evening and morning, and then the first day. And then, and God said, and there was evening and morning the second day. That continues through six days. So you have this recurring pattern, very poetic feature there. He just names the day once. But then when he comes to the Sabbath, instead of that pattern, he goes right for it. He says, and on the seventh day... And then as he describes the Sabbath, he mentions the word seven three times. It's a writing gimmick in order to emphasize the importance of the Sabbath. Everything builds up to the Sabbath. But as you go to it, what you get is this rhythm. Think about this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. And that's the life in which the children of God are called to live. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, 
seven. So dance! Did you get that? In fact, it's the dance that the church ruled out for years, the waltz. God's calling us to dance in his creation. There's a rhythm to life that we're meant to live. And here's the beauty of it. God dances that dance over creation. He's the first one. He steps out onto the floor of the universe. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Rest, rest, rest. God dances in creation. And he invites us onto the dance floor and he calls us to dance in creation. Do you see what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to party with God in his creation. It's time for us to recapture that as his children. No sad sacks for the Savior. And then the third is meaningful responsibility, stewardship, not worship of creation. Here's the bottom line. If I were to summarize our response to the doctrine of creation, it would be this. Are you ready? Party responsibly. (laughs) Party responsibly. And love the giver of it more than the gift. Let's pray. Good God, who created a world filled with color, filled with rhythm, filled with music and sound, who set a stage not just for you to enter into and for us to look and say, how great is our God, but more than that, you invite us onto that stage with you. You call us your sons, your daughters, your children. You invite us to dance the dance of creation and worship of you. Father, may we be those Children, in Jesus' name, amen. How's this for a parting blessing? Go have fun. (laughs) In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.